right. Hello, everyone. My name is Tracy Siska from the Chicago Justice Project. Welcome to the Chicago Justice Show. Um, thank you. I want to thank um, our two guests today are Drs. Don Steeman and Dr. Dave Olson from Loyola University Chicago's Department of Criminal Justice and Criminology. Uh, Don is the chairperson right now, and Mr. Olson also is the co-director of Loyola's Interdisciplinary Center for Criminal Justice Research Policy and Practice. We'll find out more about that in a little bit. Uh, we're talking today to them about a report that was so desperately needed, um, empirical research on a policy and practice in criminal justice in Chicago, an unheard of thing. We usually just have partisans yelling at each other and lying. The report called Dollars and Cents in Cook County, a look at bail reform and the impact on violence in Chicago. Before we get to them, I want to talk uh, just a minute about bail reform in general and uh, where we have fallen in Chicago over the last couple of years. This bail reform program, which I'm going to have uh, Dave and Don talk about a little bit more, was put in by the chief judge, championed by our Cook County State's Attorney, Kim Fox, and was fought against and continues to be fought against at every level by the police department, uh, the Fraternal Order of Police, their president, who is a, uh, he's a prize in and of himself. He's a force of everything you don't want in the police department, including We'll talk about this tomorrow night in the stream we're doing, including originally championing the efforts of the insurrectionists on Capitol Hill on the 6th, um, uh, but also our mayor. And part of this arguing against bail reform has been what is violent versus nonviolent offenders. And Lori Lightfoot, our mayor, has joined this chorus that someone possessing a weapon is a violent offender. And that is not traditionally that definition. And there's this atmosphere in Chicago, Cook County now that that definition needs to be changed to put as many people in jail and in prison for as long as humanly possible as a solution to crime and violence. And that is only ramped up this year with the um, pandemic, um, massive loss in employment, 30, 40 million, dollar, uh, million jobs throughout the country, health insecurity, home insecurity, um, and the protests around George Floyd, all of that is precipitated an increase in violence that was at least foreseeable to me. I'm sure our guests would also agree. We'll talk to them about it, but that was all foreseeable considering the social circumstances. So anyways, we're going to get into this report more thoroughly. Um, Dr. Steam and Dr. Olson, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming by. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Okay, Dave, I'm going to start with you. What is the Center for Criminal Justice Research Policy and Practice at Loyola? Uh, so the, the goal of the center is really to provide what uh, Don and I saw as a critical need, along with a colleague of ours, uh, Diane Garrity, in the law school. Uh, as you pointed out, there really needs to be more objective empirical research done to help support and guide good criminal justice policy and practice. And um, we were frequently contacted by um, criminal justice agencies looking for help doing research and evaluation. and uh, we realized that was an opportunity for us to create the center, um, use not only faculty, but provide students with an opportunity to get engaged in applied research that's done rigorously and objectively that can answer the kinds of research questions that policymakers and practitioners are posing. So really, we're, we're, we, we created a center to provide that support uh, that we saw as, as needed in, in not only uh, Chicago, but the state of Illinois on a larger basis. 
Well, that's excellent. I, as part of the reason why I started the Chicago Justice Project, we fight to get data out of the justice agencies. I, um, I, I say that data is often, or has been for decades in Chicago, weaponized. It's always amazing what they can find when they want to, when it supports their position or policy, whatever it is, um, but never in a way that they're releasing it and uh, allowing empirical research to be done. So I'm happy that's being done. Okay, Don, this report studies bail reform in Chicago. So let's start at the basics, though. Can you explain what is bail, what was the purpose of bail, and what does bail reform mean? Sure. So when defendants are charged with crimes and uh, they come before a magistrate judge who determines whether or not they should be released uh, pre-trial, oftentimes uh, they are required to post some kind of uh, monetary bail, meaning they have to provide money uh, to the county uh, that is uh, held for them until they return uh, for court and have their case fully adjudicated. Uh, historically, the purpose of bail was to do just that, make sure people return to court for their court date. The idea being that if you required someone to post monetary bail, and if it was enough that it was meaningful to them that they would come back, show up in court, and they would be given their uh, bail money back. Uh, bail reform in the United States has taken uh, one primary turn recently, and that is to try to do away with monetary bail or to significantly reduce the use of monetary bail so that you would uh, so that defendants would be released without having to post any kind of monetary bond. The idea being that you would hold those people who you felt needed to be held pre-trial um, and that there would be a presumption that everyone else would be released without having to post any kind of uh, money bond to, to be released pre-trial. Right, and bail, I mean, am I wrong? And I think this hits me, especially in the media, and we're gonna talk about that in a little bit, but bail's real objective, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, was to try to make sure that people show, showed up for, try to guarantee that people would show up for their court dates. Am, am I right in that? Because people seem to think like, when you hear the media cover this and the, the, the police union and the police department, it seems like they don't understand. Like they think people should just, if they say people did something, they should just be held awaiting trial pretty much no matter what they did. And I mean, from the founding of bail, as far as I understand, it's about trying to create a mechanism that makes make sure people show up for their court hearings. And am I right on that? Am I wrong? What's missing there? No, you're exactly right. That was the idea of having them post money, right? It was the idea that you would show up for trial so you would re, you would have, get your money back. Um, and that's why we had people post, post monetary bail. Um, no, we've had preventive detention in the past, and that was the idea that you would hold people who were a danger to the public. You would hold them uh, in jail without any kind of monetary uh, bail holding them there, simply they would be held in preventive detention. But monetary bail historically was, yeah, to make sure people showed up for court. Okay, Dave, in this report, you guys cover, highlight, discuss places where bail, other places where bail reform um, has been tried. And you discussed New Jersey, Philadelphia, I think, and maybe even New York. Can you talk a little bit about what happened in those places? Yeah. Um, so essentially, what we what we found when we looked at other jurisdictions that have tried to reform their bail systems um, is they too tried to evaluate the impact of those changes in policy. 
And for the most part, their conclusions were similar to ours. Um, by reducing the reliance on cash bail as a mechanism to detain people or, or decide who should be released. Um, when they did away with that, they saw more people being released pretrial without any subsequent impact on the likelihood that people would commit crime or fail to appear uh, in court. So uh, I think part of the reason why we, we include that in our report and highlight that is to make everybody realize that what Cook County did while it's unique to Cook County, this isn't a new idea. This is being tried in a number of jurisdictions uh, across the country. And with the recent uh, legislation that was passed by the Illinois General Assembly, uh, when it becomes effective in two years, uh, what Cook County has experimented with will essentially become the policy uh, for the state as a whole. Okay, Don, in this report, you all talk about um, an evaluation that was completed by the, I guess, the chief judge's office um, that showed that bail reform had no impact on violence in Chicago. But there's criticisms of that of that analysis. What was what's what was wrong with that analysis? Methodologically. Yes. No, I think you should first we should credit the chief judge's office for wanting to look at the impact of a reform that they put in place. I mean, as you said at the at the beginning, rarely do we use data to evaluate policies and practices in the criminal justice system. And soon after the chief judge issued the general order that changed bail practices in, in Cook County, his his office sought to assess the impact of that change on um, bond court decisions, uh, who was released, and whether or not individuals were um, charged with a new crime uh, while on pretrial release. Um, and as you pointed out, the chief judge's office, the report showed that uh, right there was no change essentially in um, uh, new criminal activity by those who, who were released pretrial. There's a couple problems with their report. One, they, they didn't seek to match um, groups. So like those who were released uh, before the reforms, they, there was no effort to ensure that they were the same as those who were released uh, after the reforms. The follow-up periods for the two groups were quite different. The group who was um, released or the decisions and the pretrial uh, release decisions made before the reforms went into effect, those individuals were followed, you know, for two and a half years. Those who released after the reforms went into effect, some of them were released as or were followed for as little as uh, two or three months. Uh, right. So there were different follow up periods and, and that would uh, affect uh, whether or not people had an opportunity to be charged with a new crime um, after they were released pretrial. There was also a question about seasonality so that uh, some of the defendants in the in the pre-reform group were followed through the summer when we know crime rates are higher, when there are more arrests in the city. Uh, and the, the group released post-reforms weren't followed through the summer. So they, there was a problem with um, uh, right individuals being more at risk for, for being rearrested in one group than, than the other. Those were the primary critiques of the, of the chief judge's um, report. Yeah, I, th I think an important. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say. I think importantly, you know, there were, there were a number of flaws that were identified in their methodology. Um, people were very quick to say then all of their results should not be believed. Um, when we corrected for those methodological flaws, we essentially didn't really find anything different. So, despite the flaws that they had in their design, 
it didn't substantively change any of the conclusions that we reached when we applied a more uh, more rigorous methodology. Brandon, part of this issue is no one, we're at a, and this is shown nationwide, but it's especially uh, telling in Chicago, there's very, the, the trust um, in, in the justice agencies and what they put out is so very low, right? So Kim Fox says something, no one believes it except the people who like Kim Fox. Uh, the chief judge says something, releases something, no one believes it unless they like the judge. The police say something, no one believes it unless they like the police. And that's a problem. And that's where your research uh, plays a pivotal role. I, I want to talk about two other um, um, two other analyses that were done. One by the Chicago Tribune titled Bail Reform Analysis by Cook County Chief Judge Based on Flawed Data. And one, I guess, in a forthcoming book um, by Paul Cassell and Richard Fowles, if I'm pronouncing that right, does bail reform increase crime in empirical assessment? Your article or your report talks about the methodological problems in both of those. Can David, can you go into those a little bit about what the problems were with those? Yeah, I think the you know the the biggest flaw with the with the Tribune story was uh, I don't think Don or I would describe it as empirical research. Uh, we, we describe it more as interesting journalism. Um, what they did is they didn't say let's look at all the people who were released pretrial and studied the degree to which they get charged with new crimes, they, they kind of worked it in the reverse. They said, let's find some people that have committed new crimes and then find a couple that were on pretrial release. And so th their story was really highlighting what we found to be the rarest outcomes of people released pretrial. Um, so in our report, we found that there were some people who were released pretrial that were charged with a new crime that involved violence, um, but it was extremely low. I think it was uh, one and a half to two percent, uh, something like that. Um, reading the Tribune story, you would leave with the impression that it wasn't one and a half or two percent, but rather it was a hundred percent, right? So I think the, the the limitation with the Tribune story, it was really just picking some cases and portraying those as though they were the norm and not really putting them into context. Um, in terms of the, the research that was done by uh, the individuals from, from Utah, uh, really they didn't perform any additional data analyses. They didn't rerun the data and try to correct for any of the methodological flaws. Uh, rather, they just made some extrapolations. Um, they they made some extrapolations based on what our national recidivism rates of people released from prison and argued that the recidivism patterns of people released from jail would look, look the same. Um, so really what they did was they, you know, took those critiques that others had had regarding the things Don pointed out, the different follow-up periods and the lack of seasonality. Um, and rather than replicating the research to correct for it, they made some extrapolations as to what they think the true rate could be um, or what the true patterns could be. So I think that's the biggest flaw with what they did was it really didn't replicate the research. It just critiqued it and then made some estimates um, as to what they think the, the real results would have been if those results would be corrected. Well, the research we did corrected for those methodological flaws and we found nothing close to what they're extrapolations were. 
Yeah, and this is me going back and I've harked since I've done this and I used to hark all the time. Um, previous is like, there's a difference between empirical, um, well, well thought out, well designed, methodologically, methodologically sound studies and journalism. And a lot, I should say, and all of journalism, but a lot of journalism, right? And this is the problem. I mean, that that's a tribune that's David Jackson, Todd Lighty, Gary, Gary Marks. Those are reporters that should have done a better job on that and are highly trusted. And when they don't, that that misinforms the public. Um, we've seen the repercussions of that recently in our country. Um, and that's really hard because then it poisons, I talk about it po poisoning the environment. So it makes it very hard to do reforms when you have bad journalism that's serving to inform the public. Um, quite literally, in some cases, the exact opposite of what um, the, what is actually going on. Okay, Don, because we are a data project. What data did you use for this report and how did you get access to it? So this project was funded by the Institute for State and Local Governance at uh, the City University of New York. They uh, started a research consortium with funding from the MacArthur Foundation's Safety and Justice Challenge. Um, so uh, Cook County is part of the Safety and Justice Challenge. As part of that, they're required to provide uh, individual level data to the Institute for State and Local Governance. Um, we obtained that data directly from, from ISLG. It includes data from the uh, clerk's office on all individuals charged with uh, offenses between 2013 and the end of our data collection, which was 2019. Um, it includes all of the uh, bond court decisions as well as the charges that those individuals faced. We also uh, got data on the pretrial risk assessment score uh, that individuals um, receive when they go through bond court. That's maintained by the Office of the Chief Judge. Uh, and we um, got data on all individuals admitted to and released from uh, Cook County Jail during the, the study period as well. So we were able to link those data sets, uh, determine what the initial bond court decision was, uh, track those people, whether or not they came in and out of the jail to determine who was actually released pretrial, um, and then follow those individuals for a follow-up period to see if they were charged with a new crime while uh, on pretrial release. Okay, I, we're going to start going over some of the findings from your report. I guess I want to go back to you, Don, for the first one. So one of the one of the findings is twenty six percent. Want you to talk a little bit about them? Twenty six percent versus fifty seven percent of people received an I bond before and post uh, bail reform. Can you talk about um, how that came about? Is it just, just talk about how that came about and what do you think of that finding? Yeah, so I mean, the reform itself that the chief judge put in place was really to set up a bond court decision-making process. Uh, what it instructed judges to do was first determine whether or not individuals should not be released and those individuals who should not be released should receive a decision of no bail, meaning that they would be held pretrial until their case was disposed. Um, if an individual could be released, if a judge determined an individual could be released, there was a presumption that the individual should receive uh, no cash bail. And in Illinois, that's an I bond, right? That a, an individual would be released on their own recognizance. Um, if bail, if an individual could be released, but bail needed to be imposed, the, the judge's order also encouraged judges to impose a monetary bail amount that individuals could could afford. So if we think about how that would impact decision making, if the idea is that those who can be released, um, there's a presumption that they'll be released 
with an I bond, we should see the percent of individuals released on an I bond go up. And in, in Cook County, it went up dramatically. It went up from about 26% of defendants in, in pre the reforms to about 57% of defendants after the reforms went into effect. And again, we followed uh, right uh, cohorts of individuals. So we looked at individuals who came through bond court in six months before the reforms, and we followed another group that went through bond court in the six months after the reform. So these percentages that you see, it's 26% of those individuals in our study uh, before the reforms were released on an I-bond compared to 57% released after. And those are controlling for differences in cases, right? So we're controlling, these are, these are uh, predicted probabilities that are the estimates of who should be released. So after controlling for things like defendant demographics, after controlling for um, offenses and the number of charges that individuals are facing, and after controlling for uh, risk assessment scores that individuals had in bond court. All right, so one of the numbers which is pretty startling um, that I found in the report is bail reform um, resulted in 30, well, 3,559 more people being released from Cook County Jail pre-trial. No, it's actually, that's the number. Okay. That's an increase in the number of people who were released on I-bonds. So if you, that 3,500 oh, yes, number. Yes. That means that right. those 3,500 individuals would have received a monetary bond if not for the reforms. Instead, they received an I-bond, meaning they didn't have to pay anything to be released. Okay, so those are people that would have had to pay. We don't know whether they would have gotten out, though, necessarily, if they were assigned uh, monetary bail. Well, we, we actually found that there was not much of a change in the percent of individuals who were released pre-trial, right? It went up from about 77% of defendants who went through bond court before the reforms to about 81% after reforms. So it's, it's, not a, it's not a big change in the percent who would have been released. We could assume that most of those individuals would have been released pre-trial. Anyway, they just would have had to post some kind of monetary bond to be released. Okay, okay. So um, Dave, talk a little bit if you can. It's, am I right in this, if I read this right, a little over $31 million was I don't know if the right way to put this is saved, but the Cook County courts collected $31 million less in monetary bond from individuals post-reform, post-bail reform. Is that, should we look at that figure? Should that figure be looked upon as a, a success for bond reform? I'm not sure how to really interpret that. Yeah, I think that there's a couple ways to look at it. So. As, as Don described, one of the results of the reform was fewer people had to post money in order to be released. And so uh, those people getting I-bonds and the increased likelihood of I-bonds meant that uh, a large portion of releasees now did not have to post money in order to secure their release. The other thing that we found was of those who did have to post bond, uh, as Don described, the general order encouraged a bond amount that was affordable. And so the actual amount that those who did have to post were required to post went down. Um, one way to think about it and the way that we try to describe it is this is money that the defendant, and really more realistically, the defendant's family and the defendant's friends did not have to give up. Uh, 
and have the county hold for a period of time. Um, this is money that they kept in quotes in their pockets and their bank accounts, and therefore were able to continue using that money to pay uh, rent and for food and and things like that. And I think it's an it's important to note that you know the assumption is that when defendants post money that it's their money. Um, it's likely that it's not their money. Uh, they're asking their family and friends to post money. Um, their family and friends are put in an awkward position of having to give up money that then the county holds. Um, and it's also something that's important to note that when the case is disposed of, um, all the money that was posted does not all get returned to the defendant or the person who posted the bond. Um, a portion of that money is kept by the county um, and so we really have to think about what is the purpose of monetary bond. Um, and, and Don started off our conversation talking about the history of it. The idea was that if you post money, you have an incentive to come back to court and you have an incentive to not reoffend. Uh, research has found that monetary bond does not have those intended effects. Um, in a lot of the arguments we've heard, in opposition to ending cash bail, uh, one of the frequent concerns by many is that uh, counties have come to rely on the money that they get to keep uh, from the defendant's bond to support their operations. Um, and so it's important to keep in mind if, if your friends or your family put up $5,000 for you to be released pretrial, um, in most counties in Illinois, the county gets to keep 10% of that even if the charges are dropped, even if you're found not guilty. Um, and so the counties have come to rely on that as a source of income. Okay, well, I find that I, I find that um, pretty obscene. I'm sure they're calling it a processing fee, but um, let's steal money from people that could have actually been 100% wrongly charged, right? And you're gonna, you and your family and friends are gonna get dinged for 10% of your bail and you made the case make it cost at the second hearing after your um for like even official misconduct you, from the police and you're getting things okay god i find that really objectionable uh don um there was an increase in ftas or failed to appear but it went from 17 percent to 20 percent. so for our audience that doesn't understand this lingo your lingo and academic lingo is not statistically significant change what does that mean that, that was a statistically that, significant yeah, change. <laughs> it, it did actually oh, lead to an increase okay. in, in, in failures to, to appear, right? So that there was a meaningful difference between those who were released uh, before the reforms and those who were released after the reforms in, in whether or not they showed up to appear for court. Again, after controlling for everything that you could control for in their cases, defendant demographics and charges and risk assessment scores for those who are released. Um, no, we do find a, a, a change in, in failures to appear. It's, it's, it is statistically significant, meaning that it's meaningful, but the question is whether or not it's, it's meaningful from a policy perspective of that three percentage point difference in, in the number of individuals who, who don't show up for, for trial. We, we also have to keep in mind, right, that, that um, it's taking a long time for cases to be resolved. If individuals' cases take longer to resolve after the reforms or, or they're increasing in, in Cook County, that's going to lead to more people 
failing to appear. It's, it may not be the result of whether or not they posted monetary bond that they're, they're not showing up. It may have to do more with the length of time it takes their case to be resolved. Right. And I think an important thing about that measure was that if they missed any court right. appearance, that, that was considered a failure to appear. So if, if you have a case, as Don said, that has a lot of continuances, it, it has you know six to 12 court hearings. If you miss one of those, it's considered a failure to appear. And what we're also not able to measure, which I think is an important thing about missing court appointments, is that the idea of, of bail is to ensure that people don't flee prosecution, that, that, they, that they don't stop appearing in court because they're fearful of being convicted and, and sentenced. Um, a lot of people may fail to appear because they forgot about their court appointment. Um, they couldn't get transportation. They couldn't get childcare. They had to make the decision: Do I miss today's? Do I miss my day of work today, or do I do I get to court? Um, and so, I think the important thing is, while it did increase a little bit, more than eighty percent of defendants, you know, pre and post the reform, did not miss a single uh, court appearance. So when these people. Um, for our audience, when people fail to appear, so let's say the case, they they miss the court hearing on month seven, is that immediately a fail to appear and their bond is revoked and they're put in the Cook County Jail? Is that what happens when someone misses a, or fails to appear for a single court hearing? That I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I think, you know, the, the defendant would usually be given time to show up. Uh, they might issue a warrant for failure to appear. They could get then picked up on that warrant. They'd be brought back before the judge. And at that point, the judge would make a determination. And, and often that determination is, was it willful failure to appear? Were they trying to avoid prosecution? Or at the hearing, they found out that the defendant was in the hospital with COVID just to make it contemporary. <clears throat> Um, okay, well, then it, it wasn't really a failure to appear that we're going to hold them in, in contempt for. Okay, so the last one, the last um, question I have for you guys. Big finding, if I got this right, um, no statistical change in the amount of crime in Chicago in the year after bail, for, bail reform compared to the year or years before. Was that the Was that the major finding here? And what do you think of that finding? Yeah, so that, that was the, you know, so, so we looked at it from two different perspectives. Um, one, one was we looked at it at the individual defendant level. Of, of those released pretrial, what percent were charged with new crimes? Um, the slide up on the screen is, is what percent of defendants uh, were, were charged with any crime? Um, what we found is most of those were drug law violations and property crimes. Uh, and then what percent were charged with violent crimes. Um, the other thing we looked at was what happened to crime in Chicago? So a lot of the narrative in Chicago has been that increases in homicides or shootings or, or violence is directly attributable to the, the bond court reform. Um, for the most part, that's all been based on anecdote. It's been based on on a narrative, and, and what we sought to do was determine empirically, did crime really change in the period after bond court reform was put in place? I think the important thing about the finding as we reflected on it is 
what we found was that the number of people released pre-trial as a result of these reforms did not really change that much. Um, as Don described, what changed was how people were released pre-trial. Fewer had to post money. So really the sheer number of pre-trial releases didn't change that much. Um, and so just thinking about that, why would we expect crime to increase if we're really not increasing the number of people released? Um, but we tested it. We, we did statistical analyses to compare the level of crime before and after the reform, taking into account factors like unemployment rates and uh, weather conditions to, to control for things like seasonality. Um, and what we found was uh, the number of crimes, regardless of how we measured it, uh, overall crime, violent crime, violent crime with a gun, um, after the reforms was exactly what we would have predicted it to be, um, given trends and patterns prior to the reform. Um, currently, given the high uh, increase in homicides in Chicago uh, in 2020, a lot of people are seeking answers to that. Again, a lot of people have quickly said, oh, it's because of bond court reform. And you know, we, we try to remind people that bond court reform occurred years ago. And, and for years, we didn't see any increase in violence. And there was a lot going on in 2020 um, that, that <laughs> is likely a stronger explanation for this than, uh, than bond court reform that was implemented years ago. Yeah, I have found um, a lot of the reporting and commentary coming out of the police and um, the police union um, kind of ridiculous. I don't understand how you can think you're going to have a worldwide pandemic, put millions out of work, make their health insecure, their housing insecure, um, everything in their lives pretty much insecure, and then expect not expect there going to be some repercussions of that on a whole host of social issues, including, including crime and violence. Um, that, as, as, well as, as well as cut off access to, you know, cut off access to social services that they might've been receiving or yes. mental health services or substance abuse treatment services. So. <clears throat> yeah, and they just, and then you're also putting them, locking them up in their house and the threat of getting this deadly virus at any time if you go out, um, how that doesn't, I mean, to me, I, I see what we've experienced in the cities as completely foreseeable. Um, I don't have an empirical way to prove that, but to me, I, it certainly seemed like that. That was, I think if the three of us sat around for a beer a, a year ago, or maybe 15 months ago, and sat around, what would happen if all these things happened all at once in the cities? What would we expect crime to be? Um, I think we'd be pretty much um, have predicted what we we're saying. Okay. Um, Dr. Olson, Dr. Steeman, thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate you taking the time. For all our uh, viewers and listeners, we are live tomorrow night at 7 p.m. because it's uh, streaming uh, the CJP show. And then at 7.30, we're going to be streaming the police board hearings, which are police board uh, public meetings, which we'll be doing uh, every month on the third Thursday. Um, never is there a better time to look at what the police board is doing now that they have the Fraternal Order of Police, John Catanzara's case in front of them. We'll see if the 51st complaint against him can end his time as a police officer. Um, he is the Teflon Don of the police departments. Uh, so we'll be with you uh, tomorrow at seven um, in the same place you're watching this now. Guys, thanks again uh, and stay safe in Chicago.
Thanks, Tracy. Yeah, thanks a lot.